We hear you all. We hear how restless you are in that work Zoom call. You want to see what's happening in the world of sport and the quiet, don't you? Scroll through the OTB Sports app, catch the latest sports headlines, and bookmark those podcasts you want to get stuck into as soon as this meeting is over. Nobody will know. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Are you ready for quick start car insurance? Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now, though, for the Sunday pay-per-view, which we're streaming live across all of our social channels, as usual. We're live on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. And also, you can watch and listen to us, if you want, on the OTB Sports app. So, before I bring our guests on, I'll just run through the back pages. We'll start here with the Sunday Independent. Uh, Limerick lay down a marker. Champions power and pace. Too much for Lee Siders. That's Kean Lynch getting away from Cork's Dara Connery last night during Limerick's Alliance Hurling League win against Cork. And also at the top banner, you can see there Paul Kimmage. It's always somebody else's fault. And Eamon Sweeney feeding on a moral frenzy. They're two stories which are pretty much covering the Naomi Osaka withdrawal from press conferences and withdrawal from the French Open as well. And the enormous coverage there has been uh, on that over the last week or 10 days, uh, which we will be absolutely talking about in the pay-per-view. Back page of the Sunday Times. Again, they go with a photo from last night's Limerick win against Cork, making a statement a month out from Munster semi-finals. Limerick brush aside Cork. This time it's Peter Casey getting away from Sean O'Leary Hayes of Cork during that game at the Gaelic Grounds. And also then as well on the sidebar we can see Edward Eyes 18 million euro Rogers reunion. Uh, Leicester City have won the race apparently to sign Odson Edward from Celtic. Uh, I might get the thoughts of that from Kieran. I know he's a big Celtic fan. Uh, not the biggest story we have in the papers but uh, I might just put that one quickly to him. Then on the mail once again we're going for uh, a photo from Limerick's game against Cork at the Gaelic Grounds back in the groove Limerick reclaim champion swagger as Rebels blown away and it's Dermot Burns uh, who's the man pictured here getting away from a couple of Cork players and also then Kenny's men embrace new mindset after first win Matt Doherty insisting that Ireland are heading for Hungary with a different mindset after finally winning a game under Stephen Kenny they beat Andorra on Thursday night 4-1 and they'll be going up against Hungary in uh, Budapest in the coming days as well on Tuesday likewise the Sunday World also uh, talk about Stephen Kenny this time it's quotes from Harry Arter really interesting quotes actually in an interview with Kevin Palmer so Kenny is the man Arter insists Ireland boss is perfect fit for future of game here and it is something we will get into in more detail but I have to say Harry Arter about as glowing praise as I've ever seen from an Irish player of an Irish manager which is probably fairly timely as well I'll just read out some of these quotes with our previous managers, it was all about team spirit and the lads having a few drinks when we got together in a bid to build unity. But that has changed under Stephen Kenny. Tactical planning probably wasn't at the top of the agenda in the past for our managers, but now we have a professional Premier League style setup, and this is what we need. I just hope Stephen gets the backing he deserves. So I have to say, I do think they are very, very interesting quotes because they are as glowing as I can ever remember from a player towards their manager as well. Uh, at a time when I think in the past you might have seen players just kind of brush over things ever so slightly back page of the mirror uh, more is the pity Spurs players left let departed boss down says Matt this is Matt Doherty as well part of his uh, 
press duties, he says that Jose Mourinho was let down by the Spurs players after he was sacked in April after just 17 months in charge. Antonio Conte, the move for him seems to have fallen apart. Also then on the side of this, boo boys won't stop us taking the knee, says Gaz Gareth Southgate, vowing that his uh, England players will continue to take the knee during the European Championships after they were greeted with boos during their game uh, at the start of their game against Austria the other night. They're playing Romania this evening, kick-off at 5 o'clock, and I think after that game, Gareth Southgate will confirm his replacement for the injured Trent Alexander-Arnold. Also as well, the Mirror, one of uh, quite a few papers this weekend. They've got a, a free Euro 2020 wall chart. So if you are down in your shops looking across your papers and you do want a good Euro 2020 wall chart, as I mentioned on the news round, us journalists get seriously excited for, uh, for no particular reason, then the Mirror do have one. The Star also have one. As we can see there, they have a wall chart and a pullout as well. Uh, knee jerks. Southgate, we will keep highlighting issues despite the boo boys. This is Gareth Southgate saying they will continue to take the knee. And also they say £81 million deal for Sancho. Manchester United have been told it will cost them £81.5 million to sign Jadon Sancho from Borussia Dortmund, which is £26.5 million less apparently than the uh, Bundesliga side were hoping to get last season. Apparently they want a deal done quickly. So that's an interesting line. 80, uh, 81 million rather than the 100 and something we were hearing about last summer. And then the last of the back pages here, a uh, combination of Matt Doherty and Limerick Cork from yesterday. Matt, I will watch Euros, but only after golf. Matt Doherty has revealed he will go a fair way, he will go a fair ways to watching Euro 2020 as Ireland's absence will not mean uh, he avoids it in a bunker. Um, Owen Cowser there doing his best to squeeze as many golf puns as he can into that opening uh, opening paragraph and then Burns Knight vintage Limerick turn on the style Dermot Burns and Sis Limerick need more time to hit their peak that's after their 33 points to 219 win against Cork so delighted to welcome Kieran O'Rahalig a journalist and Cleena Foley of Off the Bench to the Sunday Paper Review this weekend guys welcome morning or afternoon how are you so Guys, I think there is only one place to start. I mentioned it when I was going through the back pages there. There is tons of coverage across the papers of Naomi Osaka, the broader issue of press conferences in general. Paul Kimmage is writing about it in the Sunday Independent. Eamon Sweeney is writing about it in the Sunday Indo as well. We have Shane McGrath in the Mail who's touching on it. There's a piece in the Sunday Times which is kind of linked as well to it. Kleena, I'll lead this one to you. Where do you want to lead us off this afternoon? Well, um, I, I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff on it and, and it's been widely debated during the week. Um, I think Shane McGrath in the Mail on Sunday captures it pretty well when he says that, um, you know, press re- press briefings allowed the public a glimpse into, you know, particularly in professional sport, into people that have, you know, very rehearsed ways of, of, of communicating. And it gets them sometimes in a place where they're not so rehearsed and, and more honest, maybe, and more passionate. And he says, that's, you know, that's a good thing to still have. Um, and I think as well, uh, if somebody is really unhappy um, doing press conferences, then they can communicate that. And Osaka's problem for me was that she arrived, she rocked up and then said she wasn't going to do them. Surely, you know, the professional way to do that is to tell them way in advance, look, I'm not going to be doing them or I don't want to do them. And can we have a conversation about why I don't want to do them? So there's that element. But uh, this whole notion and, and some journalists had it, you know, were kind of promoting it during the week that, oh, yeah, press conferences are really hard on people. Um, I, I don't agree with that. I think 
most uh, professional athletes have to do them as part of their work and most of them are able to do them and I don't think that they're very damaging to them in any way. Paul Kimmy did a piece last week where he, he actually looked back at Osaka's press conferences and, and the sort of questions she was being asked and they weren't difficult. So there are a couple of interesting things to, to say about it. But I think um, Shane sums it up very well, Shane McGrath, in Mail on Sunday by saying, airily dismissing a rare access point to authenticity, authenticity in sport is wrong. And this notion that, you know, there shouldn't be press conferences. Yeah, so as Shane McGrath says, just to quote a few paragraphs here from him, there is a value in sports people communicating publicly. The blithe suggestion that they should simply be scrapped on the basis of Naomi Osaka's case is absurd. That it has been put enthusiastically pushed by many journalists is wearying in the extreme, but a symptom of the creeping tendency among some in the press to take their cues from social media mobs. The redemption of the debate down to a simplistic opposition between press duties and mental health is plainly idiotic. It is possible to defend the importance of sports people conducting public interviews while also defending the rights of any athlete who uh, to refuse if they so wish. Kieran, what's your take on on what you're seeing from Shane McGrath here first of all? Oh, we appear to have lost Kieran's sound there. Um double check is his mic turn on. We can hear you there now Kieran, we can hear you. Year of practice going on mute is embarrassing in the extreme so sorry about that. Um, but yeah, um, I had Shane's marked out there as well, and I think I think that's a good take on, on stuff. Uh, to be honest, I'm, I almost feel like we're, we're looking at this a bit backwards now, and it's, somehow it's turned into being a big question about journalism, um, which it really shouldn't be. I mean, at the start, there's 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 a lot of confusion about how this all kicked off because I think Naomi Saka, to be fair to her, later on came out and said, "I think my words have you know have made a bit of a mistake. I should have said it differently," and and that's something. That some people are doubling down on themselves, even though Naomi Osaka herself has come out and said, "Look, I didn't communicate things properly." Some people were so eager to just jump on on this uh, in an activist way from the very outset, um, they didn't really take too long to consider what she might have been saying, which, as it turned out, wasn't actually what she was saying. And I think it's interesting. I've seen in in Eamon Sweeney's piece actually just to jump across to him for a second. Um, yeah, no, far away because, like, I think a lot of these they're all they're, they're all, all essentially press. part of the same debate, you know. Yeah, yeah, but he 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 pulled up something where um, uh, it looked like Osaka's initial declaration was that she wouldn't be doing press conferences at Roland Garros because, quote, we've often sat there and been asked multiple questions, sorry, asked questions we've been asked multiple times before or asked questions that bring doubt into our minds and I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me, which when I heard that first, I was like, God almighty, that's the height of pettiness and privilege and this should be laughed out of court and all of a sudden people are instantly defending her. Um, and then the, her sister, Mary Osaka, got on social media and says uh, her solution was to block everything out, not talking to people who are going to put doubt in her mind. Uh, Marie expressly denied that Naomi was suffering from mental health problems, as the term is usually understand, declaring, quote, she's protecting her mind. Hence why it's called mental health. So many people are picky on this term, thinking you need to have depression or to have some sort of disorder to be able to use the term mental health. So her own sister cut her legs from beneath her. But at the same time, so many people were still jumping in saying, oh, Naomi's right. You know, it's big, bad system against a woman as a woman of minority. Um, it's female sport. And trying to bring, you know, all these strands in together and create some sort of victimhood for somebody who made about 77 million quid last year playing tennis. So I think it's interesting that that's where it started off and that even when Naomi came out 
and, uh, and completely flipped the topic, flipped the conversation to an actual serious question about depression and actual mental health and not just, you know, people doubting her in a press room, which is, you know, we're not there to be doubting or to, you know, cheerlead them either way. Um, the whole conversation flipped, but still some people seem to be stuck in the initial thing, which is the big bad journalist asking tough questions and trying to trip this poor girl up. So I think it's I think it's bizarre that we're still gone a whole week into this and we're talking about the initial concept of press conferences when that's not really the issue at all. If she's having depression, which, you know, God bless her, she's only 23. She's been at the, the top of this sport for five, six, seven, eight years now at this age professional. It's got to be very difficult. It would have been a lot easier if she'd come out and said that in the first place. Again, you know, you're, you're told you're not supposed to be demanding this from somebody who's suffering from mental health. But if that's her reasoning, she should have come out a bit clearer at the outset. But unfortunately, we're, we're in this kind of age of identity politics where if somebody ticks certain boxes, it gives more weight to what they say. And we've got like a bit of a bingo uh, shout here where she's female, she's um, seen as a minority, she's half Japanese, half Haitian, uh, but obviously a bit of an activist as well. And people were just willing to jump on board. And, and I think Jamila Jamil, who's a, a TV presenter, quite a big name. She says, right, everybody, you know, on Twitter, let's boycott the French Open. And it's just such an eagerness to be offended on behalf of somebody who it turned out later wasn't actually arguing that case. Yeah, like on the on, on I suppose the way Osaka communicated. And as you said, as you said, in her kind of second statement, she did point out, I probably didn't communicate this the right way. But like it's surely going to be difficult for her if she, you know, if she was experiencing depression, if she was really, really anxious about doing press conferences and these were triggers for her that, you know, you could kind of understand in a way why she would be reluctant to come straight out and say, you know, initially, I don't want to do press conferences because I've been dealing with depression for quite a few years now. Like that is heavy stuff. I know Eamon Sweeney is quoting her, her sister saying, no, no, she isn't. She isn't depressed. But at the same time, I wouldn't be expecting Naomi Osaka's sister to be coming out and you know revealing all these straight away to the world's media. But Neil, the the, the issue here for me is is you know and uh, look at you know anybody who ha- who has anybody in their family who suffers from from depression or serious mental illness knows how seriously we have to take these things. My issue is, and we know how stage managed everything is at that level of professional sport now. Is she could have some way communicated that to the organizers of the tournament and i'll guarantee you that some way would have been found around this if this was the issue but she didn't do any of that and you know we're so often as journalists we're we're accused of misquoting people you know this is a really interesting case because nobody has misquoted her she actually put out a statement herself and then turned around and said oh i didn't put that statement out very well um look it's at that it's it's at that um tipping point that we are at now with professional athletes where um, they have a means to communicate directly with their fans through social media. So we're at this unusual place in sports journalism now where there will be people who don't want to speak to the media because they feel they can control the message totally from themselves. But I think what's really important as journalists is that we continue to ask questions, ask the questions that the public would like us to ask um, after we see a performance and you know, remember, you know, remembering back to, you know, um, Paul Kimmage in those press conferences with Lance Armstrong, you know, they at least are places where people can't avoid the hard questions. And even if they don't want to answer them and they don't have to, 
at least the questions can be asked and then people can ask questions about why they're not being answered. And Paul uh, has a good article today on Michelle Smith um, and, you know, the questions that he was asking back when she was performing well and how her husband intervened and accused him at one point of, you know, ask, making her cry and asking her really hard questions. And, you know, his answer is that, that he didn't. He was trying to explain to her why he was asking a question and he couldn't understand why she got so upset. But I just think it, 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 what, it, what all of this underlines is that this, you know, how the media is changing and how um, athletes communicate with, with people is changing. There's a very interesting article as well, I think, um, Neil, in the Sunday Times. Now, it's... It's a classic example of, of us as media doing things badly because on the front cover it says Naomi Osaki exclusive, the tennis star on speaking out for Black Lives Matter. But in fact, when you look at the article, it's an extract from a book and quoting her from an extract from a book. But there is very interesting things in it, which which will tell you how sensitive she is because um, she cites. So there's a there's a guy writing a book about about um, athletes and if you like um, public issues and yes, standing uh, up. You know, Michael Michael Holding, the, uh, Holding the book, yeah. well-known cricketer and obviously yeah. of Sky Sports fame now as well with the uh, cricket analysis. But yeah, he has a book. Uh, coming out if I just find the, the page yeah, what, here it's, it's called Why page We Need 20. How We Rise as the book and it's about political <clears throat> activism if you like amongst athletes and this trend for them but it is really interesting that 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 he quotes her saying that um, in in a press conference she was asked by um, because because she's somebody who's used this platform very widely by wearing masks and you know standing up for political causes and she and she was asked about it and uh, and she uh, when one when when one reporter asked her why what message are you trying to send, she shot back, "Well, what was the message you got?" Is more the question. I feel like the point was to make people start talking, you know. But there's another one where, oh yeah, she's upset because somebody asked her, and this is a stupid question. And of course, there will be stupid <laughs> questions, which is, you know, who are you going to put on your mask next? And that's the problem with press conferences is that there are really, you know, there there are a mix of people in there with with different. Um, if you have, they're, they're serving different audiences, and so sometimes not all questions will be match related. But I just think that that's very interesting, isn't it? That that article because it shows how sensitive she is. Yeah, I have yeah. I have to say I have found some of the the coverage to be a little bit ironic. There have been uh, like a lot of valid points raised so far, but I have seen an enormous amount of journalists who have been throwing toys out of the pram for the last ten days. Yeah. Yeah. accusing Naomi Osaka of being a crybaby like you yeah. know there's there's a massive irony alert going on here Kieran, anything else you want to, to bring up on these stories oh there's loads <laughs> <laughs> I just I dug around a bit this morning even even you know outside of these papers that we'd have in front of us and stuff from Australia and, and America and France and it's just it's just incredible there's such a kerfuffle over it it's 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 absolutely it's almost astonishing really i mean and i think it's great that she has been so outspoken and she's become uh that kind of lightning rod and somebody that people can stand up and 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 look at and 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 admire um you know she is only half asian half japanese sorry and half haitian she grew up in america so she's feeling that identity and she felt a bit of uh i don't know if she felt pressure but she decided she wanted to make that change and she wanted to go out and she wanted to put masks on with the names of people who are victims of, of police violence in america she wanted to become that lightning rod and there's one piece in that uh, that excerpt from michael holding's book and she says when i got involved with spreading the blm message she says quote did i consider there could be a backlash from fans sponsors 
I've been asked that question a lot and I can honestly say it was never a consideration or something that entered my head. So she seems to be quite strong as well as being socially awkward and and anxious and whatever that depression. And from what I've read, I didn't get to read, you know, biographies or anything like that. But from what I've read, the depression, a lot of it sparked from the 2018 US Open when she had doubts about herself. So it's kind of a lot of professional depression. And maybe that's something that her management team should be working at. Like this is a girl who turned pro at 15. It often happens in tennis. And other, some individual sports, you, you don't see 15-year-old players in the Premier League getting thrown in too often. It really doesn't happen. And we talk down about why sh- this shouldn't happen, doesn't happen in rugby. wouldn't happen in a lot of sports. But in swimming, tennis, you know, a lot of the individual sports, um, uh, gymnastics, females get thrown in very young. And maybe it's something that their own teams have to look at, not necessarily uh, media teams. And, and the fact that this has been turned into a big battle between... Uh, a woman who's seen to be, you know, underprivileged or, or a minority worth 77 million in, in just last year alone, put up against these wealthy, powerful journalists as as a as system looking down at her is just unfortunate because there's no need for that to have happened. Um, I think there's a wider question about press conference that, that has been started mm-hmm. that didn't really need to be. But if it is there, I think there's a lot of self-flagellation amongst journalists, which has baffled me this week. I, I heard a, a woman um, oh God, Caitlin Thompson, is that her name? She's from Racket, uh, a podcast, a, a magazine that, that covers tennis alone. Very well respected in her game. And she's on the Second co- second Captain's podcast. I like her take on a lot of stuff. But she was, she probably doesn't rely on press conferences a lot, but she was pretty much, you know, looking down on the press conference saying there's a lot of idiots in there, a lot of bad questions are asked. And I'm kind of getting weary, uh, wearying of this phrase middle class, middle aged white men as if they don't deserve to have worked their way up in the industry and be in a press conference you know people are saying like if Naomi Osaka is coming up for a press conference we should wheel in this other little battalion of 24 year old um, intersectionalist females who can ask questions like this is a job uh, Boris Becker Ash Bartry who's the women's number one she's come out and said look this is the job um, when I was you know if you're going to sign up for this you're going to get all those endorsements you're going to get millions a year. You're not just getting it from winning. And all these progressives who are jumping jumping on Osaka's ba- um, bandwagon aren't questioning the fact that other women can't pay 15000 to avoid it. Um, there's so many things coming off it. Like I saw a company jump in and say they would offer a mindfulness company. I think they're an app. And they said they'd offer to pay 15000 for any other women who don't want to turn up at press conferences as, as if they won't most of them can't pay it already it's just there's so much going on here and i think it's it's a little bit easy to jump on journalists and to be honest i've been in at hundreds and hundreds of press conferences over the years it's where most of unfortunately because it's not always great as you know clean um we don't love them no. but i've seen i've seen journalists treated worse by people at the top table than i've seen journalists treat athletes badly and that's not going to be said and we're going to sound very thin-skinned, and I, I, I cry out about this myself. I think journalists incredibly across the board are, are very thin-skinned for people who dish out a lot of crap. But I've seen people at the top table, the wealthy, the coaches, the owners, the professional players, look down their nose at the journalists far more than I've seen journalists affect uh, the athletes. And if you care about mental health, if you care about treating people kindly, blah, 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 you want to be consistent and realize there's a power, di- power dynamic here, which we've talked about for the last 10 years. That That's the power dynamic. It's not the other way around. And I tell you, the, the handful of um, occasions I can see where somebody was ticked off or pissed off with a press conference question is far outnumbered by the, the, uh, the converse. 
Yeah, I, I, Eamon Sweeney, of course, Neil quotes the famous line from uh, Ken Bates, the Chelsea chairman, at uh, the mm. time. He, he's, he'd, you know, on that power dynamic that Kieran is talking about when he said, you know, I'm off to my 300-acre farm, you like can bugger off to your council houses. But, like, I'm always of the belief that, you know, as journalists, if we give it out, we have to be able to take it back. So most journalists, you know, wouldn't ever complain if they if they had somebody react badly to them at a press conference. And, and look, it's, it's give and take. I Like, bringing the gender thing into it puzzled me completely. I don't know what her gender has to do with it, to be honest. She's a professional athlete, and she has been a professional athlete since she was a young teenager. So presumably she has at her disposal all of the all of the expertise and training she needs for every element of her game. But I, she did raise an interesting point, and it's been raised by Irish athletes before, which is we shouldn't always think that because somebody is brilliant at sport that they can cope psychologically with everything else in their lives. And that's a terrible mistake to make. And for that, I think Osaka uh, should be praised. But I do think she handled this very, very badly. And I think um, it is ironic that that in, in issuing her own statement, so much uh, has been confused. And, you know, in, in the world of social media, as 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 uh, Eamon Sweeney's heading is on his piece in the Indo today, it, you know, there was a lot of feeding on a moral frenzy here. Kleena, just, just a question on that, though. Given the, the, the talk in the last couple of years about 2020 and can't see can't be uh, the, the the attempt to rightfully raise up the female sporting world and give it more media publicity. Will, will this have a negative effect on that? Because you've got millions of women all over the world shouting for media attention and more newspaper space. And now here's somebody who's at the very elite, the very, very top, the pinnacle, the best place, best paid athlete in the world saying they're, they're not really good for me. It's not good for me to do. I don't think we should do it. And just pissing on journalists and the media I, I, do, I don't think no I don't carry on I don't think it's going to make any difference to anybody else so she is the highest paid female athlete in the world mm. at the moment I think which is incredible but her case is entirely different from everybody else now I do notice with with some trepidation that that Irish rowing this week said that they would only do one one oh, yeah, press, that, yeah. press thing via Zoom ahead of the Olympics and I think the Osaka thing it, it really for me you see I think most athletes are looking for publicity. It's mm-hmm. the, the very opposite to this. And I think this, you know, piling on and giving out about press conferences really misses the point entirely that most athletes are desperate for coverage. Um, their sponsors want them in the media. They want it, They want their voices out there. They want them to be seen and heard. And for Olympic athletes, particularly, the more they get, the better. You know, rowing, for example, yeah. is a sport that gets no exposure or little or any exposure outside of the Olympic Games. And no rower can ever make... A professional living at a rowing it's one of the toughest sports in the world i think you can't yeah. make a professional living out of so no i i actually don't think it's going to have a widespread effect here but I, I you know i think i think it's just such a singular example that you can't make you can't m- make any other presumptions of it it reminds me of the old the old adage of uh, hard cases make bad law and yes. you know we're looking at taking one really extreme situation that was badly communicated isn't quite what it turned out it didn't turn out to be quite what it seemed at the start and people are still running with it and doubling down on her behalf and uh, I think if she comes out and she sits in front of some group of people in, in, in Wimbledon maybe they might be better handpicked you know at the bigger tournaments you kind of find sometimes the daftest questions get asked because you know uh, ex ex journalist from some um, backward place that hasn't a clue about what he's talking about has managed to get accreditation but if she should do a proper sit down and maybe if she wants to talk about it, um, you know, she doesn't have to, but if she wants to speak about that depression or whatever and get out there and clear things up, I think it'd be better for everybody involved. 
Yeah, I might just um, I might just mention Paul Kimmage's article, Cleaner, because you brought it up. You said you enjoyed it. Like there is one part of the like, Paul Kimmage today. He's writing uh, the headline. It's always somebody else's fault. We're doing our job when we ask questions. It's nothing personal. So he's kind of giving an account of a time a year. Yeah, a year or so after Michelle Smith won her medals at the Atlanta Olympic Games and Paul Kimmage was one of a number of journalists who were questioning her performance, where her performance levels were coming from and her improvements over that time. And I'll just read out a passage here. A year had passed since the press conference in Atlanta when I'd asked if, given the scale of her improvements, she understood why questions were being asked. She hadn't blinked. Yes, I would, she replied, but she uh, she didn't blink. But the pressure was starting to show in Seville and I decided at the end of the press conference to send her a note. Sorry, Michelle, it's nothing personal. I'm just doing my job. Then something unforeseen happened. She was walking with Eric just a few feet in front of me as we exited the hall. I thought, F it, just tell her. She will know you're sincere. So I called out to her, Michelle, but she glanced over her shoulder and kept walking. I tried again. Michelle, this time she stopped and turned around. Look, I said, this is not personal. Uh, She seemed confused. I tried again. This is not personal. She turned away and then started crying. I felt awful. Then Eric went for me. What did you say to her? I said it was nothing personal. And he's, you know, he's he's detailing an account about he was trying to explain essentially this wasn't personal. This was business. It's our job to ask the hard questions. I just would have a bit of an issue with equating this to asking the hard questions of Michelle Smith or, as a lot of people have pointed out, asking the hard questions of Lance Armstrong which Paul Kimmage and David Walsh did uh, brilliantly over a significant period of time. You know, mm. this I, I do not see how these two things match up because, you know, like oh, they don't, they yeah, don't, they don't. they don't at all. Like Naomi, no, Naomi Osaka, as Paul Kimmage detailed himself last week, was not being asked particularly difficult questions. No, there isn't no. questions over her improvements in recent years. There aren't, you know, anti-doping questions hanging over her head that need to be exposed. Like, we aren't essentially losing a huge amount from Naomi Osaka. And if there are people out there over the coming years who try to use mental health as an excuse to get out of tricky situations when they have questions to answer about the coaches they're uh, fraternising with or, you know, dramatic improvements in their performances, those questions are still going to be asked regardless of whether or not press conferences are, are, are around. Yeah, I think both myself and Kleene have kind of said there that it's turned into this question about that, but that's based on the flawed logic of believing her first answer or her first statement to be the meaningful one. It wasn't really, as she later kind of corrected that. Um, and the first one, I mean, if we did take it and, and the first statement was that I don't want to be sitting in front of people who doubt me, well, tough, you know, that's that's part of the job. And was that, was that you, potentially was that potentially an excuse though? So that you know, oh, yeah, you can kind of understand if you don't want to kind of necessarily reveal all the gory details about what you've been going through. Yeah, yeah, I understand that too. But people have just taken it uh, on the surface as that being a, a reasonable and and a rational argument, and then they've, they've jumped on board and said mental health is was the cause or was the outcome of these difficult press conferences. I'd struggle to find an example, to be honest. Uh, and again, I, I have spoken to somebody who works on the Federation side of things who was a journalist and he says, we not might understand this, but sometimes a press conference is the most difficult time or is one of the most difficult times for people um, in, in their job. Let's say they're a professional sports person. And I've met loads of people who are very uncomfortable, very awkward. You can see it. But to be honest, we try our best to make it easy for these people. We, we can sense them. You can read their body language. Um, you know, we, sometimes we struggle and we come out and go, God, that was 
terminally boring or that was really hard to understand or more, God, often, than, more often than not to be honest Kieran. probably more often than not yeah and the public won't want them any pity for us you know and we're not making 55 million a year or anything like it but um you know there are people like that but i think we we generally go easy on them and you know we don't make it difficult um so i think it's just it's it's been an unfortunate kind of coming together of views people are so trenchant and just wanting to support her and actually i think um was it Eamon, Eamon said something there uh he says, taking, sorry, Eamon Sweeney again said, taking the side of millionaires irritated by having to deal with people earning a small fraction of their salary is hardly the most progressive position. And it's it's one of those questions in, in the last few years in this age of identity politics and progressive uh, arguments is there's a lack of consistency there sometimes. You know, there's, there's sometimes it's right to take the side of the, the powerful person and sometimes it's completely the opposite and there's not a great consistency there. And I, I think this has opened up... Um, kind of a crevice between that logic sometimes and I, I i i just hope that it gets buried and it's not kind of jumped on because i really don't think this is what osaka wanted um or, or really needed i was clicking through an article of about her on the telegraph the other day online and then the bottom it showed me a link to another article with her clicked through to it and it was a photograph posed and it was sponsored by tag hoyer the whole thing was tag hoyer and she was talking about her favorite watch and blah 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 and this is what she needs to make her millions and unfortunately, the press conference are just part of the job. I don't like every part of my job. I'm sure Kleena doesn't. I'm sure loads of people in offices don't like to go in and meet with people they don't want to meet. But look, that's modern life. If Osaka wants to be seen as the face of snowflakes for the next 50 years or the, the face of the best, most talented female athlete and an activist, then, you know, that's probably what she should go for. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as that now. I, I think the term snowflake is is as weaponized as mental health. This I know, I agree. I, I agree to an extent, but it, it <laughs> but, just has that yeah, feeling to me, to yeah. be honest. Well, yeah, well, do you know what I'm I'm conscious of as well, Neil, is like, it is part of the gig if you're a sport, if you're an athlete. Like, you have to be able to deal with a certain amount of it and you have to be deal with, you have to be, when you lose, you have to deal with the press. And it's a job that the press equally don't like. We love when people win things because that's the, they're the easiest interviews, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I'm so conscious Michaela Walsh just in the last hour there has qualified for the Olympics her brother Aidan is trying to do it you know the boxers come out of a ring and and we saw with Katie Taylor and they've just had somebody punching the head off them and yes they can take a minute just to give a reaction and the public can see it and that's all that's needed you know if people aren't happy at questions they're asked in press conferences they don't have to answer them they can still sit there um, and and do as little as possible, and I think um, and we've seen that in in the NFL and in the NBA. We've seen some classic examples of that. You know, if you're contractually obliged to do something and you hate it, um, and it upsets you or it affects your self confidence or whatever it is, you know, do, I think do it in the most minimal way that makes that that keeps you contractually happy and get on with it. You know, would Naomi turn up at Wimbledon and say, "I'm I'm just here to avoid a fine," you know, Marshawn Lynch style? Yes, she could. That'd be great to see. <laughs> <laughs> right uh, we are going to have to take a break in a couple of minutes although I suspect on pay-per-views over the next couple of weeks it's probably something we're still going to be talking about uh, second half is about to get underway at Nolan Park we lost the run of ourselves there for a little while Taggy Fogarty what's the latest looks like Kilkenny are motoring along just fine yeah Kilkenny doing well the halftime score Kilkenny 1-15 leash 9 points and uh, I suppose it's always the conundrum of the water break Kilkenny were flying it up to then but kind of took their foot off the gas and you know kind of got sloppy in the second in the second quarter 
Um, no I'd be at least kind of up their game in fairness. Uh, scores, uh, obviously, Liam Banshee's got a goal in the 21st minute. Big turn point uh, in the game. Uh, long balls in the square. Owen Cody latched onto it with a brilliant save by Roland, but Liam Banshee finished in the corner of the net. Uh, to get his goal in 21st minute. Um, James Berrigan, three points from play. Liam Banshee, 1 1. Juan Cody, 1 5. Uh, 5 on freeze. So that's 1 10 from the full forward line from Kenny. So that's where the danger is. Scores out the field. Richie Reid got two points. Connor Forty got one point. Billy Ryan got one point. And Michael Carey got one point from play as well. On the flip side of that, um, you look at Leash. Leash forward line have failed to score from play. PJ Scully scoring four points from freeze and the only scorers are Jack Kelly a pint Stephen Marr which are the two wing backs and in fairness to Jack Kelly and Stevie Marr Stevie Picky Marr as he's uh, known as in leash um, they have been putting the game to Kilkenny uh, Paddy Purcell two pints from midfield and he'd make any inter-county team but just needs to be more on the ball and a free from Ender Rowland back his own 40 a monstrous free uh, to bring Leash up to nine points so the second half just underway uh, 36 and a half minutes gone Kilkenny 115 Leash, nine points. Lovely stuff, Taggarty. So yeah, Kilkenny double scores at the moment, 115, so 18 points to nine, nine point lead. Uh, second half just underway there. Meanwhile, in Division 1 Group A, Tipperary absolutely flying it against Westmeath at the moment. They lead by 10, 114 to seven points. Uh, pretty much just coming up to the halftime whistle there. And elsewhere in Division 2A, uh, latest score, Carlo 313, Meath eight points. Offaly 310, down six and in 2B it is Derry 2-10 Donegal eight points so Derry eight points in front against Donegal that game got underway at two as did the meeting of Roscommon and Kildare at Dr Hyde Park where it's Kildare 3-14 Roscommon four points so we'll take a quick break more coming up on the Sunday Paper Review after these The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball Right, you're very welcome back to Off The Ball this Sunday. Neil Tracy here with you until 7 o'clock. We are midway through the Sunday paper review at the moment, joined by Cleanna Foley and Kieran O'Rahalig. Now, it kind of leads on, guys, from all the Naomi Osaka coverage we were speaking about beforehand, and in particular linking back to Michael Holding's book extract in the Sunday Times about why athletes take the knee, why athletes are socially active because Neil Francis writing in the Sunday Independent is pretty much taking the complete opposite side of things. Uh, the headline sports arena not placed to take stand or knee. Um, to give you a taste of it, I'll just read out some paragraphs from it. While drugs at the Olympics make you inclined not to believe your eyes, the blight of that form of cheating and malfeasance will be nothing compared to the travesty that awaits us. This will be the protest Olympics, the empty gesture Olympics, where athletes wrap themselves in the blameless sanctimony of whatever cause they feel entitled to express to the world without realising the consequences of their actions. At this moment, there are about a dozen wars going on. The Israelis and Palestinians are at us. The Uyghurs are being slaughtered. Uh, the Rohingyas are being slaughtered. There are genocidal issues in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Darfur and Afghanistan and elsewhere. What odds that these don't spill over into the Olympic domain? Every vested interest group now realises they can take advantage of the podium or press conference to highlight or raise awareness of their particular cause or grievance. The audience tunes in to see them compete, not to see their protest for the first time in my life, I will not be watching the Olympics. I watch for the athletic performance, not protests. The off button. Um, I don't, I, honestly, I do not know what your opinions are of this piece. We just mentioned during the ad break, we talk about it. Um, I don't even know what to say, to be totally <laughs> honest about it. I think that is 
that's just absolute nonsense. It's like an AI, an AI computer has been program has read a thousand Neil Francis articles and has been asked to write a Neil Francis article. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know where to begin, really. I mean, good for him. If he wants to switch off, switch off. I mean, that's what the button's there for. That's why the remote controls are there. You don't even have to get up off your chair and go to the television and put that much effort into it. Just switch off. Um, but the idea that it's 2021 and we're still talking about the fact that sport and politics or, you know, people having an opinion is is ridiculous and it's so off the wall that it shouldn't be allowed it's just bonkers um I, I can't even believe this is on paper to be honest um you know calling out the the contradictions or the hypocrisies between not um you know not making a stance against Mao when you've made one against the nazis you know might <laughs> yeah, have like... some sort of merit in, in college somewhere but um you know we all know that you know what's bad is bad and we can choose to to stand up for what we want to stand up for no no, no politician no no sportsman can stand up on a podium and and just go through all the myriad problems in the world like the, you can only stand for the one that really stands for you and captures your attention and your imagination that you're most passionate about so if somebody stands up and 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 you know like Osaka wants to stand for BLM, but she doesn't think about think about the Rohingyas. Is she a massive hypocrite? She's not. She's just she can only put she only has so much, you know, bandwidth in her life to channel this through. So I'm just surprised that this this is like, you know, it's something I might have read from a, a, a Trump supporter a couple of years ago. I stopped watching the Oscars a long time ago. Like, OK, great. Good for you. I mean, why do you need to tell us you've stopped watching the Oscars? It's 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 just a preference. Like, but if you if you start to have really strong opinions and then you dislike other people for having strong opinions that that you want that you dislike with you disagree with, that's a very basic kind of take on life, really. You know, everybody feels that way, and sometimes uh, I'm just surprised that it's it's still worthy of a column, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't use the phrase virtue signaling, but obviously that's what he's going on yeah. about, you know, and, it, and, it, and this is a fact of life now on social media particularly. But I do think um, I still think that that, you know, Tom Smith and John Carlos in 1968 is still one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in sport. And I think there is a place for sport. And, and it was one of the things I like about Osaka, apart from the fact that she's a brilliant tennis player. I actually liked her, uh, the fact that she stood up for what she believed in and, and, and made statements um, political statements like I think that makes athletes you know why shouldn't they? they they're perfectly entitled to do it I think this is you know this is a really interesting piece in in relation to the fact that the Europeans are coming up the European championships coming up because mm -hmm. uh, I think it's written from a position of privilege like so many of us have um, and it's very easy for us in our white middle-class world to say why would you why would you you know stand up for this stuff um, but I think there's a really interesting piece by um, Ian Hawkey in the Sunday Times on the Euros, Neil, and it's about um, the growth of uh, the Balkan states in European soccer. And I just think it's a really interesting piece and it reflects why politics and sport are so interlinked and, and just simply cannot be um, cannot be separated. I don't know whether you've had a look at it. Yeah, I didn't get time to read it fully, no. Yeah, yeah I it's certainly really have. It's... Yeah, it's gone into great detail, I suppose, about uh, I suppose at the start talking about the Yugoslav team of the yeah. of 1992 who were disqualified from the Euros just before the tournament and how there was this great fear that, you know, the you know, that the Yugoslav uh, Yugoslavia breaking up was going to lead to some dire performances and teams, you know, breaking up a huge population into smaller countries and talking about the journey that someone like Luka Modric yeah. took, who, you know, he grew up. Um, 
Gurev, there's some nice the family had left their Oberak home after Luka Modric Sr. 66 was killed by Serbian nationalist paramilitaries Luka Modric Jr. his uh, grand, grandson would later record in his autobiography because among the displaced were many children my age we spent our days hanging about the playground in front of the building and played football dodgeball hide and seek with characteristic Modric understatement, the future Ballon d'Or winner, who had captain Croatia against England next Sunday, added, were it not for the frequent shelling, which made us run from the, uh, run into the shelter, we children had quite a decent childhood, uh, <laughs> which is a b- bizarre line in fairness to him. But uh, that was really good. On the Francis on the Francis piece, just one more part of it that I was kind of I meant to say, like it actually is the perfect example of this entire article. It's the perfect example of why so many sports people are taking the knee or using using sport as a way to promote their their social causes because it is annoying the people who want nothing to do with it. Mm. And I think I think this piece is really interesting as well. Like it's, it, the headline is out of the ruins and just talking about the development of Balkan states in soccer. But like, um, look at Jacka um, is the same with Switzerland next week. His family again refugees ended up in Switzerland. Like. You know, sport is always about identity and with identity comes politics and they will always be interlinked. And I think it's really interesting. Like I have a, a Macedonian friend, or it's now North Macedonia, but North Macedonian friend here in Ireland. Um, I'm going to be following Macedonia during the Euros. Do you know what I mean? Because I think like Ireland now is such an open place. Um, I think there'll be lots, of, particularly with uh, with so many, you know, so many immigrant communities here and particularly po- the Polish community is so large. And, you know, something that gives me great joy is to see their fans out supporting their teams at major championships. Um, so th- I just think that's a, you know, that's the very opposite side to Neil Francis's attitude because sport and, and politics just it's 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 in our DNA to identify with our nationality and what it means to us, you know, and our national pride. Uh, however much people would like to have it removed from us, and I just think that's a really good piece by Ian Hawking, well worth a read. Yeah, it is. And he references North Macedonia, as you said there as well. He says, as it happens, North Macedonia are also making their major tournament debut, led to the finals by the ages Goran Pandev, who scored the goal that propelled them through to their Euro 2020 playoff final against Georgia. He's 37, has a Champions League winner's medal from 2010 with Inter Milan and a, su- a sufficiently long memory to recall watching the fabled Yugoslavia of Darko Panchev. Pandev has represented his national team for more than two thirds of North Macedonia's time as a sovereign state. So so long, in fact, uh, that since his senior debut in June 2001, he can chart the timeline as national icon through the various different names of the country. There was the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia period, then plain Macedonia, and more recently, after an extended dispute with neighbouring Greece, North Macedonia. Yeah, and they and they their relationship with Greece is a bit like ours with England. Let's just say that. <laughs> but like that's isn't that what makes you know? I just think major championships and and it's going to be something that's you know the Olympics as well. Like I hear you hear people say, oh, take the politics out of it and take the flags out of it. But I don't think you can. And I think you know those moments of of national pride are a key part of what the Olympics are about. Um, and even the fact that you mm-hmm. have a refugee team in the Olympics, I think, is really interesting. And it's one of the things that always strikes strikes me emotionally you know yeah, yeah so- it always surprises me how people don't don't really just see the basic appeal for international football is that it does tap mm-hmm. into those little you know national the, the kind of subtle nationalistic appearances the the, the, the 
benign nationalism that a lot of us have that you, you just get that extra little spark I remember watching uh, Sean I, Kelly Stephen Roach Martin mm-hmm. early in the you know 1987 uh, world championship and seeing the green shirts and picking them out in the pocket of, of mm-hmm. the peloton and just having this spark and when they come to the fore and it just gets something primal inside you and I cried when Sean Kelly didn't win it a couple of years later mm-hmm. when he lost the sprint and it wasn't anything powerfully I, nationalistic it was just it matters to you because it's somewhere closer and that's why I'm, sport in the olympics matters at all i'm gonna have to sorry. cut a, sorry i'm gonna have to cut across <laughs> you there karen we're raising to get to an ad break which will be on time for news we'll come back to it in just a few minutes time sunday pay-per-view the sunday papers on off the ball Now you're very welcome back to Off The Ball this Sunday. Neil Tracy here with you till 7 o'clock this evening. Uh, Sunday paper review still going on at the moment. We have Kieran O'Reilly and Cleana Foley alongside me. Well, alongside me uh, on, on Zoom rather than, uh, rather than beside me in the studio. Before we get back into the Sunday papers, though, we'll cross over to Nolan Park for the latest between Kilkenny and Leash. Aidan Taggy Fogarty is there for us and Taggy looks at Kilkenny just just keeping their heads above water just keeping a little buffer between themselves and Leash at the moment just about near, yeah uh, 56 and a half minutes gone here in the second half Kilkenny 123 and Leash 18 points but the second half is a different uh, story a different comparison to the first half Leash came out a different side whatever um Whatever Cheddar said to the guys at half time, uh, they're after coming out, they're getting into the Kenny faces, uh, they're finding they're finding the players. Uh, they made three substitutions at half time. Willie Dunphy, Kieran Comfort and Lee Clear all came into the fray and made a difference. Aidan Lyons and Ryan Milani are just having substitutes in the last five minutes as well. On for Kenny is the number one, no, sorry, um, Billy Ryan was substituted and the village man, James Season man, Connor Brown was also substituted as well. But uh, scores, Ross King is after coming into the game unbelievably. He came out towards the centre forward line and in towards midfield. They're playing three men in the midfield and leaving two guys in the full forward line. Um, Ross King scored two points one from PJ Scully from play as well and Aaron Dunphy also one from play so Leash really putting the test to Kilkenny Kilkenny a bit lacklustre a bit flat footed maybe thought the game was over but certainly not Jack Kelly Kieran McAvoy and Stephen Maher of Leash half back line really coming into the game and cleaning out Kilkenny's half forward line here in the second half uh, Paddy Purcell also created mm-hmm. a lot of damage. Um, Kenny a bit flat forward, a bit a bit nervous. Uh, as I said, the score 58 minutes gone. Kenny won 23, least 19 points. Comfortable. Uh, Kenny are comfortable ahead, but certainly in the second half, the changes have um, made a massive difference to to Leash. On for Kenny is Ty Goodwire, John Donnelly. And Michael Cody from the Dunhamagan Club also makes an appearance here in the second half. So on the 58 and a half minutes, Kilkenny 123, least 19 points. It's not over yet, Neil. Lovely stuff, Taggy. We'll be checking back in by full time as well so we can resume our Sunday pay-per-view. Actually, before we do that, I will just let you know. Latest score between Tipperary and Westmead into the second half now. Tipperary 217 to 9 points in front. Galway and Waterford throws in at 345. We'll be live to Pierce Stadium a little bit later on with James Skell. While in Division 2, Carlo 319, Meath 11 points and awfully comfortably ahead against Down 315 to 10. So back to our Sunday paper review and it's been a heavy first hour of the Sunday paper guys. Sunday paper review guys, I think we'll we'll all admit that. So we will touch on something a little bit more lighthearted, a bit more nostalgia to it because the Sunday Independent have a nice three page, three page spread actually on the Dublin Meath four 
what is it? it's a trilogy what does it go what does it go when it's four games I can't even remember but best of times worst of times Colm O'Rourke is writing about that Dublin and Meath four game series in 1991 30 years on from it uh, gives a nice kind of colour around those four games while John Green then accompanying it probably writes about what that game did for the GA as a whole trying to take a chunk back out of the popularity caused by the Irish soccer team of the time as well so Cleena you were the one that was asking for this sell it to us yeah, well, look, at it's. A, I think it's really time. The Independent, actually, they, the Daily Independent yesterday had, very, had some very good stuff. They've been running a series on the famous four games. I mean, we are talking about political enmity. We've just been talking about that. And there's no greater enmity in Irish sports than Dublin and Meath in football in 91. It was phenomenal. I was lucky enough to be there at the time covering it. Um, I yeah. love Colm O'Rourke's piece today. He's really good on it. Um, he, he, it's just, it is from the heart. And you can see he really, you know, he really captures it really well. Um, and he talks about like at the at, after the third game, Sean Boylan took them all off to Scotland. Um, Liam Hayes has a brilliant autobiography. If anybody's ever never read it, it's called Out of Our Skins. It is the seminal GA autobiography. It changed every game, every book that was ever written about GA after it. And he his insight at the time, I remember reading it. I couldn't believe it. They all went on the tear. They brought their wives and girlfriends. Boylan had the had had the confidence to take this team that have been through so much and say, we're going to go on a Skype to, to, to Scotland. Nobody will know who we are. Just let's get away. Let's get away from this madness because the papers, every single, everywhere you turned was talking of it because they were amazing games with freak, you know, the PJ Gillick point. Um, and then in the end, it was decided by this famous goal. I think Kevin, Kevin Foley's only championship score, I think, ever. And then uh, Jinxie, David Beggy scored the winning point. But there was a phenomenal series. Anybody who was lucky enough to live through it, I think these two pieces really capture it. And, and as, uh, John Green's piece is really good as well because he points out that it came after Italia 90 and there was big worries in the GA at the time that they were going to, they had lost a lot of momentum and how were they going to get people going to games and this thing just exploded and they were two fascinating teams I mean, we had amazing, talking about media access, you know, we had amazing media access at the time. Vincent Hogan's piece yesterday in the Independent was brilliant as well and I remember Sean Boylan I think came in after the final game and into the Dublin dressing room, as is the, you know, and again, we were allowed into the dressing room those days. And if I remember correctly, I think he said something like, I'm really sorry, lads, to the dubs. And that was it. He couldn't say any more. Like, it was it was just this phenomenal war that went on. And, and um, Con Rook is brilliant on it today. And he, 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 uh, he as he said himself, um, uh, Stafford hit me, sent me a matter hospital <laughs> pass. Eamon Heary and Keith Barr took full advantage. They knocked me out cold. Um, his his daughter apparently asked out loud, "Was he dead in the stand?" Um, it's you know, it's not from of the time now. He went back on and played. Of course, none of this stuff would happen now. The game is cleaner. The medical protocols have completely changed. But it was a an unforgettable series. And um, as I said, anybody who who witnessed it. Really, you know, it just will always remember it as just a mad. It was just a mad month of, of football. It was brilliant. Yeah, there's like there's just a few fantastic lines in it from Colin O'Rourke. He's just he, I presume he's done so many speeches about it and done so many after dinner engagements and you know clubhouse openings where he's telling these tales. He obviously has it down to a T to the way he uh, tells the story. But you know, he says. There is, of course, a recording of each match, but I know of no Meath player who has ever watched them all. There is no need. Life has marched on. <laughs> Yet it's funny when we meet up, these Meath players were close. Maybe it was an honour among thieves, but on seldom occasions, there's talk of these four matches. It is amusing to see the amount of confusion. 
what game was that in would often be heard no that was in the second match no somebody else would remark it was the third and so it would go on who hit who in what match we would all agree that Mick Lyons and Liam Harnan landed a good few in every game so that just covered most of the hits <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's very consoling Neil to realise that the, that the protagonists are as confused about it as my memory sometimes is as well because <laughs> each game just rolled into the next you know and you know the really interesting thing was as well it also coincided with sponsorship being allowed um, mm. from 91 and in fact Dublin Dublin started it with no sponsors so that series and Mead were sponsored by O'Reilly Transport I think and by the end of it Dublin were sponsored by uh, Arnott's and Mead were sponsored by Keypack and just that relationship as well like it was just it was it was an, a moment in time that probably changed you could argue and some of these articles over the last few days have been arguing changed the face of modern GAA uh, sorry, Neil. Just just to jump in there, looking at our pictures and and my beard and and clean his hair, you'd imagine I should have been the one in the press box, not you. But <laughs> I was I was only twelve and I was in Mosny on a on a holiday, kind of with the family for the weekend. And I remember being sent off somewhere to play football while they all went into the, the big pub down there to watch it with everyone else from Dublin. Uh, I don't know which game that was, but I that's all I remember from it. I don't remember anything else. So reading this has actually been really good in terms of it, it's like a little potted history and a lot of colour about it. I think John Green's piece is brilliant in, in just putting it into context. Um, we're talking about the glitz and glamour of Jack Charlton's boys in green, which, you know, I think people might disagree with that memory of it. But the, the contrast between the two, it would be accurate. And he, he has a little piece that in June 89, a letter writer to the Irish Times has been bemoaned the acceptable level of violence, which he said the GA continued to tolerate and which was breeding, quote, an ethos in which rubber, rubbish standards flourish. He added, quote, the spectators are, of course, growing cynical and starting to slip away because there are a vast array of other sports available and no ban to make GAA followers feel guilty about defecting, which is brilliant. If it continues that way, not even the promise of strawberries and cream will be sufficient to lure them back, <laughs> which is a great little find uh, from, from way back when. And, um, you know, it, it just puts it into context then and talks about, you know, the national stadium, the GAA uh, by buying land that was owned by Belvedere at the back of the Cusick stand and there's some property behind the canal end and proposing, you know, a fit for purpose modern stadium. And I remember going to Croker in probably about 1989, 90 with school. We were going to play a game and then we watched one of the international rules and, you, you know, you were standing behind wire and it was a real dump. You know, a lot of people will have nostalgic uh, rose tinted memories of the place, but it wasn't great at that stage. And I remember going then when when one of the stands was up and, you know, we had a, we had a, a science coach who used to take us for our football team and he was big into sports. And we both just you know stood in awe at this lovely big cantilever roof on the place and uh, compared it to something in, you know, South Africa, one of these big, you know, giant stadiums like Ellis Stadium or whatever, Ellis Park. And um Looking at this and, and putting it into context and, and, and just how well it turned out to be timed by the GAA, you know, to have these four games, to have the stadium coming through, you know, people have spent two decades bemoaning how little the FAI have built on what they had in the 80s and the 90s. Um, you know, we've Aviva Stadium now shared with rugby. They don't own it. Um, the big debt that's there. And, and you think, you know, how well the GAA have really done to go back to where, look at what, where they were then, the late 80s and the, the early 90s, and to see where the GAA stands now and where the League of Ireland, where the FAI itself, it, it's, it's a really good place to stand, you know, and, and to take, um, put it into perspective. It is around this time. And um, one little thing that jumped out at me that's just 
kind of colourful from Colm O'Rourke's piece is uh, he says there was Tommy Howard the referee or Tommy the draw as he became known and he he refereed all four games and I can't get my head around that at all I'm the same ref you know and he says that there was little complaint players got hit hard but nobody feigned injury or looked for anyone to be sent off the football was not great at times in fact it was even worse than that yet there was a manliness and honesty about it which remains appealing I think Neil Neil Francis might like to watch those games again There's a, it's, it's, he writes it really beautifully doesn't he and yeah. um, it's really well written uh, it, it, there was a function um, I remember there was a function and in fact I think as well that the GA if I remember correctly the GA um, was the first time they said they'd give money to the players for a holiday fund because their, their effort oh. over the over those four games was so extraordinary but there was a function they had they also put on a function after the last game for both teams but the players couldn't stomach it at all and they and they still remain very friendly a lot of the players from both those teams on that time but um he has a great line about it you know reminding him of the, it was like the end of the american civil war when robert e lee surrendered to ulysses grant and um and said, you know, they could bring home their horses and their mules with them. Um, they expected to be prisoners of war, but Grant said they were all Americans and they should not be humiliated. And, but he has a beautiful line as well about, so instead of going to that, the, the meal team went back and he said, you know, he this lovely line about him, just, they're driving through the small villages. And he says, nowadays there's more Dublin flags than there are meals in some of them. But he says they ended up in Dunboyne. They, they were out, the sun was shining, it was a July evening. I wish the present generation of me players could experience that even once, he says. It's a lovely line. Just that yeah. notion of the whole county being behind them. You know, it was just a fantastic. I, I mean, I know I'm looking at it through rose tinted glasses, but it just was extraordinary. And players at that time, you know, weren't getting probably the level of support as I said, or funding or anything that was was is happening now. But mm. it was they were just like they slugged it out like heavyweights, you know, until until. And in fact, it's. It, it, he's very generous and he does point out he says that that um dublin deserved to win um certainly yeah, he said i think they should have won the last game and probably two of the others <laughs> Mead kept coming back and getting these extraordinary scores it was it's always it's, it's also a reminder isn't it of when when teams could beat dublin as well which is unfortunately yeah it's a great little piece i like, I like john green's piece a lot though yeah, it's. I, I think the the whole collection of it is presented well, where you have yeah. Colm O'Rourke essentially telling us why it was, why it's famous, why we all look back at it, and you know why all this nostalgia is wonderful. And then you've John Green directly beside it, telling us why it was actually important for the GA yeah. rather than just being a fantastic story and you know a great series of four games. Like yeah. when we come down to the bottom line, as he says, only a year since the exploits of the Irish team at the World Cup, it was just the tonic for the GA. Just as with Italian 90, there wasn't a single moment responsible for the hysteria which gathered momentum through the month of June and to the final game on the first Saturday in July, a day when another glass ceiling was shattered as RTE screened a live championship match on a Saturday for the first time. It was watched by 611,000 people, more than tuned in later that year for the famous Rugby World Cup quarterfinal between Ireland and Australia at Lansdowne Road. And most importantly then, he says... The four games earned the Leinster Council almost £1.1 million. To put that in context, the Provincial Council had never taken in more than £1 million from an entire Leinster Championship, yet in 1991 it took in over £2 million. Ultimately, around 800,000 people would attend championship matches in Croke Park that year. Like, you know, that is an explosion of finances for the, GA, for the Leinster Council, not just the GA to have had in that one year. 
Yeah. yeah, I think it's great in the sense that it's got that kind of concrete outcome um, argument about it. You know, a lot of these articles you'll write when you're looking back on, a, on a, an anniversary or 20 years on, you're kind of fluffy and you think maybe this led to that or this might have, you know, inspired that. But when you've got something so just so concrete, as I said there, that amount of money, uh, I think uh, Danny Lynch, then the, I think it was the GAPRO later said there had been times in 91 where the GA quote scaled new heights and achieved a new status in terms of image and public perception. And then to have Crow Park pop up and be such a, uh, just such an architectural uh, achievement for, for, for the first thing, but something to be so proud of. And, and this kind of big tangible sign of the GA looking forward and moving forward and, you know, embracing modern architecture and looking like something that belonged in, you know, in Barcelona or Madrid. I think it all just came together. And, and to have something like this is, is obviously not planned, but to have four big, you know, epic games must have really had the guys in the GA just sitting down there going, guys, we, we do have a chance here. Jack, you know, we'll put Jack and the FAI under pressure. And not to not to kind of just add insult to injury for both of you, where you were talking about being able to remember it. I was only one at the time, so. It's the same with those Italian ninety conversations. Unfortunately, they're all over my head. <laughs> Do you know, yeah. um, Dermot Crow has a piece today in the Independent yeah. as well, Neil. And it's interesting; it just it links in with this in some ways, and also in, with the you know this conversation about you know um, athletes, you know, communicating with press and how it's done. But he has a lovely nostalgia piece as well. It's called "Room with a View: Tales from a Bygone Era When an Open Door Policy Created a More Intimate and Benign Atmosphere." And it's basically he's looking at. You know the fact that journalists could get into the press and he particular to the press room and particularly the fact that McDonald of RT fame um used to go and and do it live straight after an All Ireland uh, mm-hmm. final and literally be in the dressing room and it, there's some lovely stuff in it with Damien Martin and Offaly and um just lovely quotes from lots of people who had direct experience of that and uh, it was a different era and those of us who were lucky enough to get into the press into the into the dressing rooms afterwards we used to just get amazing just used to just get such you know, immediate reaction. And it's changed so much nowadays where what happens now after all major sports, and it's the same with the GA, the manager and one player are brought into a big, you know, press conference style room. And it is intimidating. You you know, you can see why Naomi Osaka or anybody else could find that intimidating. But back then, you literally, you could go into the dressing room and, you know, target whoever you thought had the best story and (laughs) and you would get it exclusively as well, you know, because there wouldn't be a whole load of people around them, you know. We just we had amazing access back then, and this is a lovely piece. And he's it's a great. There's a fantastic picture because Brian Cody is standing in it. In um, it's eighty two, and Cody, <laughs> yeah. Cody's whole. I'll hold it up here actually for those who want to see it. Cody's holding the Lee McCarthy as if it's like you know a handbag or a spar bag yeah. or something so <laughs> casually, which kind of reflects the future of of him and his teams. It's so interesting to see him there. I think, but um, yeah, like it, it there was that benign relationship, you know, and, and there was you know that thing of having having a relationship with 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 journalists very often can lead to more um you know favorable coverage but it was a very mcdon had a very gentle way about him as well and he also produced he used to produce a, a ga magazine as well so he was a big huge figure for promoting the ga if you like before you had lots of you know press officers and and all the things that are in place nowadays yeah. Isn't it funny though? We we often uh, sorry Neil. Is it, it's often the case that we follow America in in various terms, um, especially you know in in publicity and in, in entertainment financially, and America like decades ago the NBA 
mm. put together access for reporters to get into changing rooms, to practice grounds, you know, all of these kind of outside of the box um, areas. And they thought that this culture of openness would allow personal communication between the players, more media, that that would mean more popularity, more growth, more money. And it's still the case. Like, it's still the case you can go in and chat to LeBron James. Mm. Probably easier than I could go in and get, you know, the reserve scrum half from, you know, well, I won't say any province because I'll get in trouble. But from, any, from, of, from all four of them, you know. <laughs> from any of them, yeah. Um, although, yeah. Um, but I, I, when I was in college, I went to the University of England and we did a transfer with um, a college in L.A., and I went over there for a while and the NCAA was kicking off and, and they got me to do stuff kind of from an outsider's point of view. But I was kind of, I was ushered into a dressing room at one stage and I was like, whoa, 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 no, I'm not, this is not supposed to happen. I wasn't quite sure what was going on at the time. And they brought us in. The lads are just kind of walking around in towels and stuff and sticking the mics in front of them. And these guys are like, whatever, 19, 20. And they just get used to it from that age. And that's it. And it continues through to college, like the to, to, to top level college stuff um, into the NBA or whatever else across the sports. And I just find it interesting, Kleena, that you had that. And I know, I know some of the older guys that I met through soccer had that. They might sit in a pub with some of Jack Charlton's players. You know, it would be a totally different um, atmosphere yeah. to what I've grown up in. And I just wonder why America is still there and how we've not been able to get there. And in fact, we're kind of regressing. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Is it, I don't know. Is it the commercial imperative in America? And it has been historic. I, I, I was years ago over and interviewed Shaquille O'Neal after a game in, in, in the dressing room with all yeah. of his mates around him, you know, and, and the NBA is still like that. You can still walk into mm -hmm. dressing rooms and you get access. Baseball is similar as well. Um, I'm not I think I think it probably possibly comes from their their commercial imperative and their understanding that it is professional sport. Um, it's definitely gone the other way. And I but I remember when I started out that I used to feel that the GA was so unique because if you went to do League of Ireland match, you'd still yeah. used to have to interview um, players outside the dressing room. But the GA was unique then um, and changed. Um, and I think right. we've lost some of that, um, just that that honesty that comes from players immediately after a match. But it, but as people have, have argued all this week, it's also very hard on players when they lose and they have a journalist sticking something in front of their face as well. Yeah, I, like I, it's the the journalists being in the changing rooms in the modern day, as you were saying over in America, where it's still just absolutely common that you're in there sticking a dictaphone mm -hmm. into the face yeah. of, of a player. And as uh, as is quoted in the Sunday Independent piece that, you know, there's Jim Carney is quoted, who would have uh, yeah. been a, you know, long-standing RTE interviewer. He says at that time, Jim Carney would also pop up in dressing rooms, hoovering up quotes. He recalls the scenes inside the Cork Hurlers dressing room in 1990, having beaten Galway in a thrilling second half comeback. Uh, the quote then, that was live to the winner's dressing room. I think I did nine minutes. You had the usual risk of bare backsides. That was not something the players ever cared about. Like, it's just the notion of that. So, you know, I'm yeah. all in it all, just, like, yeah. I, I am OK with the notion that players can have 20 minutes to have a shower and towel off before they have to speak to us, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were, you, you would wait and not, not know what you were facing into, but you would have to do it. There's a great line from Jim, um, from, from Jim and he says, I was like the kiss of death if they saw me coming. The Mayo News did something on me once, actually. And he quotes, this man spells death for your chances in all our lives. Because he used to get always get the losing dress in the room as well. <laughs> Jonah. Right. That's, that's a lovely piece as well by Jeremy Crow as well. So it certainly piece. is, yeah. It certainly is. And it's probably a bit like it's a nice lighter antidote to all the coverage of press conferences there have been over the last week or so. Um, clock is against us. We probably only have a couple more minutes left here. But I do want to mention one interesting story, as I mentioned at the top when I was going through the back page headlines 
on the back of the Sunday World. Kenny is the man. Arthur insists Ireland boss is perfect fit for future of game here. Stephen Kenny has inspired the biggest revolution in Ireland's national team in a generation and needs to be given time to complete the job. That's the verdict of midfielder Harry Arthur, who's given Kenny a glowing vote of confidence in an exclusive interview with the Sunday World. So Arthur is speaking to Kevin Palmer. And as I'd said at the top, like I just think some of these quotes are very, very interesting because they are they're not just not just trying to kind of get by into the next game and saying, look, things are OK, we're working on a project like he is going out of his way to talk up what Stephen Kenny has done and the changes that have been made to previous regimes uh, with our previous managers. It was all about team spirit and lads having a few drinks when we got together in a bit to build a unity. But that has changed under Stephen Kenny. Tactical planning probably wasn't at the top of the agenda in the past for our managers. But now we have a professional Premier League style setup. And this is what we need. I just hope Stephen gets the backing he deserves. The culture has changed dramatically around the Ireland team and I'm loving every second of it. In the past, the ethos of the squad... Sorry, I read that one earlier on. This is just where it continues. We need to have an identity as a team if we're going to compete at the highest level. And Stephen understands that and is trying to change the way we go about things in preparation and when we get into our matches. Kieran, like... I, I cannot remember the last time a player was this glowing. I know Stephen Kenny's been under pressure, so, you know, yeah. they want to kind of support him. But I honestly can't remember the last time a player was, was that glowing in praise of a manager. Yeah, I'm, I was a little bit surprised. And it's probably unfortunate that my immediate thought was to have some sort of cynical thought about it. I'm not Is sure Harry why. Arthur going to be the, the next Ireland captain for, for yeah, any big game? The, <laughs> the assistant manager, I don't know. But... um. Obviously, I, I think you can look at it, step back a little bit and go, he didn't get on well with Roy Keane and Martin mm-hmm. O'Neill. I think you remember he made himself unavailable a few times. So there is a little bit of a dig there. But I think um, that aside, it is interesting and it would tally a little bit with what I would have thought or known of Stephen Kenny um, in terms of there's a, a quote just after you, you, you cut off there. You could actually just keep rolling through. There's so many quotes. He mm-hmm. says, this is a new era of players. What went before in the Ireland setup didn't really fit for them. And Stephen is, you know, this is all about rolling over uh, a revolution rather than evolution. It's really about bringing in all these young guys, guys who've grown up in certain academies, guys who've grown up with certain types of coaches, all that kind of situation over in England. And he says, when I first came into the squad, we had a crossover of old school management. Again, Roy and Mick, uh, Roy and and, and um, Martin, probably uh, clashing with players working under very different setups at their clubs. And we could see through it. If that was quite a strong quote. And if managers don't adapt to how the world is now, they will be left behind. And Stephen realised that there was a change to be made in that area. With so many new players coming into this squad, this is what they would be expecting when they meet up with Ireland, as it's so similar to what they're used to with their clubs in England. So, I mean, the results aren't there. Sometimes the performances haven't been there, but that's probably the biggest endorsement of Stephen Kenny and, and his, his his movements and his... his uh, his tactics and his techniques that I've seen across the board, um, which is really reassuring. But unfortunately for for Stephen, you know, it is still going to be down to the results. You know, you can have this endorsement. You can have people saying we're loving it. They often say they love it and they don't give as much of a backup and as much of an explanation as, as Harry has here, which makes it a bit different. But unless that progresses and, and rolls over onto the pitch and gets performances from these young lads, um, it's not going to help much. But it is very, it is very encouraging, and I'm sure Stephen would be happy to read this. I'd say some of the other coaches that have, you know, looked down on Stephen. I think I remember was it Roddy Collins not too long ago saying he's not up to it, he hasn't got the tactical ability, blah blah blah. Really having a personal go at him. Um, 
to hear this from somebody who's played in the Premier League, who's worked under, you know, he's worked under a coach like Eddie Howe, who's now really in, in high demand, um, for him to say that this is what they would be expecting. I think that's brilliant to hear. And uh, it's, 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 it's an encouragement in a time where very few encouragement moments are to be found. Yeah, certainly. certainly is. Um, guys, unfortunately, we're pretty much bang out of time. If I could get you very quickly, if you wanted to throw people's attention towards towards one other piece across the papers, Cleaner, where would you be sending people? Uh, Dara Hokur has a nice piece with Annalise Cullen, that uh, young jockey who's on the rise um, in the Sunday Independent. I mean, interestingly enough, she, you know, her results over the last few weeks have been brilliant. She's a flat jockey, but uh, you know, just comparing it to life for for professional athletes, uh, she did a college exam before one of them, and then she had to do another exam on her laptop in the car before racing at Roscommon the next day. Good piece wow. on her. And Kieran, is there anything uh, before we let you go? I wonder if Naomi would be able to pull that off. <laughs> um, not not hugely um, a standout, but David Walsh has a piece in the back page of Sunday Times. Yeah. He, he's talking about the uh, the IOC and Tokyo, and um, it surprised me that polls say 80% of people in Japan would prefer the Olympics to be postponed or cancelled. So they're not listening to him at all. But he, he has an, a lot of good detail in terms of back in 2016, Oslo withdrew from the race to host the 2022 Olympics, the Winter Olympics, which is going to be in Beijing. And he's got these amazing details of what the IOC wanted um, up there with any rock band wanting just green M&Ms and all the rest. Like, it's really ridiculous. But that, that's a good one to read, especially with so much talk about the Olympics continuing to go on. Yeah, there is. There's some great de- uh, detail in that one. Kieran O'Reilly and Cleana Foley, thanks a million for joining us on the Sunday Papers. Thanks, Neil. Good, good now, there was one piece I do want to mention as well to those at home uh, on otbsports.com today. I was hoping to give it a mention this afternoon in a bit more detail, but our own Kieran Bradley, he's been uh, writing a very interesting feature. He's spoken to a man by the name of Stuart Cherry, and essentially the headline is, I'm a Protestant who played GA. Here's what Croke Park needs to do. So it's coming off the back of Oshin McConville talking about how uh, in, the, in the north of Ireland, at the very least, the GA probably do need to reach out more to people, uh, to, to Protestants in the in the community to get them more involved in Gaelic games and make it all more a little bit inclusive. So Kieran has spoken to Stuart Cherry, who's a Protestant from Kilkeel in County Down, and he played Gaelic football for St. Peter's GA in Manchester between 2009 and 2015. Uh, very, very interesting feature at times. Very, very annoying when you see maybe some things that need to be need to be done at times encouraging when you see how well he's been welcomed in and at times very, very funny as well. Uh, a couple of nice little stories in that. So that is on otbsports.com if you want to check it out as well. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Are you ready for quick start car insurance? Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. 